DW Inside Europe Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This week we focus on two stories. Firstly, the implications and repercussions of the Israel-Hamas war in Europe. There was so much pressure to come up with a united EU stance. Uh, so much so that the president of the European Council, Charles Michel, got leaders together and came up with this statement for the Tuesday video conference to put out on Sunday night. Then, the election results in Poland. Wow, so we feel happy about democracy. My goodness. It's been an incredibly significant week here in Europe and of course worldwide. Keep listening as we try to unpack a small part of it. Events in the Middle East are fast moving and deeply concerning. In order to gain a better understanding of what's happening, we recommend that you follow Middle East experts and reporters on the ground. Here at Inside Europe, our remit is European politics, so that's the angle that we're going to concentrate on. We'll first be looking at the repercussions of the Israel-Hamas war at an EU level and then turning to our correspondents to tell us more about the ramifications within specific European countries. We'll begin at the EU level. Earlier this month, when the militant Palestinian group Hamas, which the EU recognises as a terrorist organisation, carried out its horrifying series of attacks, the outpouring of solidarity with Israel was unanimous. Since then, Israel has launched an aerial assault against what it claims are Hamas targets in the Gaza Strip. The 365 square kilometer area of land has been under blockade since 2007 and is one of the most densely populated places in the world, with a population of some 2.3 million people, around half of whom are children. This Tuesday, after over a week of mixed messages, EU leaders held an emergency summit via video conference in an attempt to forge a united response. Earlier, I spoke to our Brussels correspondent, Terry Schultz, and asked her to outline for me just why the EU's initial response has come in for so much criticism. Sure, Kate. Well, the political divisions, of course, were always there, but they just weren't always on such full display as they have been in this most recent situation. I think maybe the most extreme situation was that on October 9th, the uh, European Union commissioner who's responsible for EU enlargement, uh, Oliver Varley, he announced on Twitter immediately, or X, I guess we should say, that all aid to Palestinians would be suspended. That had not been discussed with all the governments at all. This would not be a decision that would have been supported by all EU governments. And then there was this amazing peek behind the curtain, sort of if we're thinking Oz-like, uh, where Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president was forced to say whether she had approved this statement or not. And I would say until this minute, it's not clear whether she said that was okay to go ahead. And then some governments came out and started saying, well, we're not cutting off our aid to the Palestinians. And Varley himself had to had to then put out a new message saying, uh, well, we're going to review it. So it was clear then that this was going to be absolutely fraught. Look, Terry, uh, against that backdrop, Tuesday's emergency summit of EU leaders, which took place via video conference, was an attempt to find a unified voice. Was it successful? 
there was a lot of pressure to do this after the von der Leyen controversy because she actually went to the region on Friday and made the situation worse by their seeming to uh, support Israel more than support the Palestinian side. And this, again, was something that was heavily criticized by governments because apparently she did not. And in their view, she should have gotten permission, gotten backing from all the governments before she and European Parliament President Roberta Metzola took off to the region. And that didn't happen. So by the time they scheduled this video conference for Tuesday, the, there was so much pressure to come up with a united EU stance. Uh, so much so that the president of the European Council, Charles Michel, got leaders together and came up with this statement for the Tuesday video conference to put out on Sunday night. That's how urgently they wanted to uh, present a united front. But after the video conference on Tuesday, uh, there, there was a very brief press conference and Ursula von der Leyen uh, very much wanted to take that opportunity to, to make up for the perception that she had given in Israel. Let's listen to how she explained her situation there. I was on Friday in Israel in the kibbutz Kafar Aza. This was the first place I went to. I saw the blood. I saw the burned down houses. I saw children's toys. No child will ever play with them anymore. There, in the presence of the Speaker of the Knesset, I said very clearly that it is Hamas who are the terrorists, not the Palestinian people. So we have to care for the Palestinian people and their humanitarian needs. There is no contradiction in standing with Israel in solidarity and acting for the humanitarian needs for the Palestinians. So, Kate, as you can see, she's pretty defensive, but that's not surprising given the huge amount of criticism of her trip and her comments. Uh, Terry, fallout from the Israel-Hamas conflict was felt in the heart of the EU in Brussels, where you are on Monday, so just before the video conference, when a gunman identifying with the so-called Islamic State terrorist organisation shot dead two Swedish football fans before a Euro 24 qualifying match. How has the attack impacted the mood where you are in Brussels? When the shooting attack happened, everyone was afraid, everyone was chilled. But I should be careful because the perpetrator, who we should say was, was shot dead the next morning in a cafe in Brussels, he made videos pledging allegiance to the Islamic State and saying that he was targeting Swedes specifically. So that is believed by authorities to perhaps be more linked to the burnings of the Koran, which have happened in Sweden. But it just goes to show how many threats there are. And that within Europe is something that we will be looking at in more detail in our next segment. But uh, for now, Terry, Terry Schultz in Brussels, thank you so much for talking to me. Pleasure to be with you. As we just heard, Belgium has been hit by a terror attack amidst mounting global tensions related to the conflict in the Middle East. To get a feel for the different ways in which the war's reverberations are being felt in other European countries, we asked a selection of correspondents to send us their view from the ground. I'm Lisa Louis in France. Here, as in Belgium, the country has activated the highest level of its anti-terror alert after the stabbing to death of a teacher, hours after the government reiterated its unwavering support for Israel 
following Hamas surprise attacks. French President Emmanuel Macron on Tuesday said that all European states were vulnerable and that Islamic terrorism was back. He added that France now needed to live in a society of vigilance. According to a poll from September, almost two-thirds of French people think that France is taking in too many migrants, with two attacks carried out by immigrants in less than a week in France and in Belgium. Anti-migrant sentiment could harden even further. In the current tense atmosphere, the government could also face fewer difficulties in pushing through a controversial immigration bill set to be discussed in Parliament shortly. Meanwhile, increased fear of renewed terror attacks is likely to help the far right gain even more ground. Political analysts are no longer ruling out a win for Marine Le Pen's Rassemblement National in the 2027 presidential elections. But this is likely to further divide French society and restrict civil liberties. And civil rights advocates have been pointing out that once rights are removed, they are very difficult to get back. I'm Dorian Jones in Turkey where President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is ramping up his rhetoric against Israel as the civilian death toll grows in Gaza. Despite Erdogan's strong support for the Palestinian cause and his previous willingness to host Hamas leaders, the Turkish Premier's initial response to Israel's offensive against the Islamist group was relatively restrained. For more than a year, Israel and Turkey have been engaged in a diplomatic rapprochement. Last month, Erdogan met for the first time with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly. But Erdogan's religious base is increasingly outraged over Israel's offensive and much of the political opposition is joining in the condemnation of civilian casualties in Gaza. Following nationwide protests over Tuesday's destruction of a Gazian hospital, Erdogan is expected to further ratchet up his rhetoric, with the Turkish-Israeli rapprochement likely to become another victim in the escalating conflict. I'm Nick Martin in Germany, where Chancellor Olaf Scholz has pledged to provide increased security to the Jewish community following a suspected arson attack on a Jewish community centre and synagogue in Berlin-Mitte on Wednesday. Scholz said he was personally outraged by the attack, as well as reports of anti-Semitic slogans being shouted at unauthorised pro-Palestinian demonstrations and said the vast majority of Germans shared his feeling. Meanwhile, in the UK, the Community Security Trust, which represents British Jews on issues of racism and policing, said it had recorded 320 anti-Semitic incidents between October the 7th and 16th, a seven-fold increase on the 47 incidents over the same period last year. Another group, Tell Mama UK, says there's also been a tripling of incidents against Muslims since the Middle East conflict erupted again. London Mayor Sadiq Khan said police would be working longer shifts to keep the city safe and reassure vulnerable communities. My colleague Nick Martin there, ending that collage of European snapshots. For the latest news and information from our correspondents on the ground in the Middle East, you can download DW's Breaking News app. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe.
For democratically-minded Europeans, it was, of all countries, Poland which provided political light in the midst of a very dark week. The ruling Law and Justice Party, which the EU Court of Justice has found guilty of undermining the rule of law, lost its political majority in elections on Sunday. As a result, a bloc of three democratic opposition parties look most likely to be able to form a government. Now it's up to President Andrzej Duda to decide who to appoint as the country's next prime minister. Halfway through his term in office, he has so far supported the Nationalist Party. From Warsaw, Julian Berner files this report. A jubilant Donald Tusk, leader of the largest opposition party, the Liberal Civic Coalition, cheered on by supporters on election night. They'd just heard the news that together with the centrist Third Way Coalition and the new left grouping, they'd won 52% of the vote, enough to take over the reins after eight years of rule by the populist, anti-European and anti-immigrant Law and Justice Party. Its leader Jarosław Kaczyński set Poland at odds with its allies, the EU and the US, which both slammed his undermining of the judiciary and violation of the rule of law. The nationalists waged a hardline conservative crusade by tightening abortion laws and often attacking the LGBT plus community. In his election night speech, opposition leader Donald Tusk promised to undo the damage done by the nationalists and to repair relations with the EU. Tusk thanked younger voters, and women in particular, for turning out at polling stations in record numbers. In fact, at 73%, voter turnout was the highest since Poland said goodbye to communism in 1989. This result was largely thanks to a grassroots awareness campaign which highlighted the ways in which the nationalists rolled back women's rights to self-determination and reproductive autonomy. Women were forced to give birth even when their lives were in danger due to health problems. Two women died because hospital doctors were afraid to terminate such pregnancies fearing legal action. The government also withdrew funding for IVF. In this spot, a ruling party politician is shown turning up on a young woman's doorstep to lecture her that she should become a mother instead of selfishly pursuing a career. The woman asks, do I have a say in this? These two young Warsaw voters, Anja and Dagmara, couldn't agree more with these sentiments. Only opposition politicians have looked after my interests. Despite all odds, we have managed to save democracy in Poland. However, nationalist voters like these two elderly men appear shocked and appalled by the vision of Poland ruled by Donald Tusk. They believe he's going to ruin everything their favorite party worked for. One man says it's a tragedy for Poland. We'll be living on a sinking ship. The other says poor people like him will just get poorer and poorer because there'll be no more social programs. But despite the clear opposition victory, state-controlled media are trying to create a parallel reality. This state TV news bulletin spotlights a beaming nationalist leader Jarosław Kaczyński and hails what it terms his resounding victory. It only marginally mentions that he needs coalition partners to stay in power, even though all opposition leaders have responded with a firm no. 
Yet Kaczynski promises his voters the fight isn't over yet. A clear reference to the fact that it's up to President Andrzej Duda to nominate a new prime minister. Duda is described by critics as a rubber stamp president, for he has routinely signed laws which set back democracy in Poland, subverted the judiciary and curtailed media freedoms. Aware of the president's leanings, opposition leader Donald Tusk has called on him to act swiftly in light of the election results. The democratic parties which have together won the elections are now ready to jointly assume responsibility for the country's future. That's in line with the intentions of all those who have waited for change in Polish politics. While the mood is upbeat in the streets of Warsaw, it seems that Poland is in for a rough ride ahead of the first sitting of the new parliament next month. And even when a new government is eventually formed, many believe that President Duda is likely to cast a shadow over its work. Julian Berner, DW, Warsaw. High stakes, as we've just heard there for Poland and indeed Europe more generally. For more analysis, I spoke to Jaroslav Kutz, political analyst, editor-in-chief of the leading Polish political weekly, Kultura Liberalna, and author of the upcoming book, The New Politics of Poland. How, I wondered, had he spent election night? Well, I was busy working because, in fact, uh, these elections is a moment for uh, political analysts, the moment of work. But So I feel like uh, a double person. A part of me was participating in these elections as a, as a citizen. And uh, when we saw the outcome, I was really, I mean, it's the moment that you... You can't l- learn it uh, in an abstract terms. It, it's like, wow, so we feel happy about democracy. My goodness. And it's this experience that is real, it's tangible, it's collective, that we have won. Hmm. Well, I'd really like to get a sense here, I think, of just what was at stake in the elections. And usually I would run a mile from, you know, narratives that tend towards the great man of history sort of theory. But in in terms of Polish politics, the choice that the country was faced with really did seem to revolve around two men. So the law and justice uh, leader Jaroslav Kaczynski and the leader of the opposition and former president of the European Council, Donald Tusk. So I, I was sort of hoping that maybe you could give me a thumbnail portrait of each man and explain just what Poland's turn away from Kaczynski and towards Tusk means for the country and uh, perhaps even Europe. These two men are history. And now one could even say not only of Poland, but also of Europe. In fact, they are representing two visions of the country, but uh, uh, the country in the post-Cold War environment. And... uh, Donald Tusk was in power for two terms as prime minister in Poland. He was a democratic, pro-European politician. And uh, he, in 2014, he went to Brussels, but he left the country to his uh, colleagues from the Civic Platform Party, and it didn't work. Jarosław Kaczyński took over in 2015. He's quite a different person. A bachelor uh, who is uh, living only for politics. He's, that's his passion. 
But the point is that he has also a very peculiar vision of permanent confrontation. He simply admires to irritate his opponents, to try to, to, to find a disequilibrium on the political scene and seize an opportunity. You know, it's a very difficult uh, partner because, in fact, he is not liking any cooperation politics. He's a fighter and a, and a heavyweight fighter. I mean, he set out um, to systematically change Poland in his image. Perhaps you could briefly sketch out to me what is called uh, often Poland's illiberal term. Well, in 2015, the whole illiberal turn started. And uh, not without a reason, it started with the legal issues. Jarosław Kaczyński, he, he has a PhD in law and he has a certain vision of law that is very far from the from aspiring to the rule of law ideal. And Kaczyński uh, started in 2015 with an assault on the Constitutional Tribunal. And that's the beginning of the story because very often populists, and including Kaczyński, are, are trying to convince us that Mm, uh, what's the subject of controversy is, uh, for instance, social policy, that they, they are generous to the people, to the voters, uh, more uh, than liberals, etc. But the point is that the main subject of controversy started with the legal issues and then with the takeover of the public media. And uh, it was just one step after another to, towards the illiberalism, because in fact, what uh, what became an ideal more and more expre uh, expressed was the maximal, ma maximum of sovereignty. I'm going to um, zoom in on that uh, word sovereignty here, Yaroslav, because I know that um, one of the key arguments in your book is that Poland suffers from what you term post-traumatic sovereignty. Can you explain? Poland, since 18th century, Poland and Lithuania and other countries of the region were wiped off the map on and on again. Eventually, it became a part of collective psyche, collective identity, up to the point that virtually that's the main goal for the whole political class, not to be wiped off the map again. If we are talking about Kaczynski and Tusk, Kaczynski would like defense of sovereignty of the state against East, which is quite understandable today when we have war in Ukraine, but also to the West. And that's the cleavage. And the cleavage in Poland is so violent for foreign observers. Sometimes politics looks like a real battlefield. Why you are so violent? <laughs> Ask me one Scandinavian journalist. And the fact is that it's all about a conviction that we are fighting existential issues. So Assuming that Donald Tusk is able to form a government, and we are not there yet, but assuming that that happens, the EU can expect a sort of a normalisation of relations, support for Ukraine, um, that will presumably be a constant. Um, what else will change? How much of the Kaczynski legacy is likely to be dismantled? How much of it can be dismantled, given that there have been such far-reaching changes in the structure of the state, and particularly the judiciary? The state, Polish state, has been mined legally, of course, legally mined by Jarosław Kaczyński. This is a minefield that uh, will be, uh, it would be very difficult to, to deal with. 
But nonetheless, this is an, an unprecedented experience because what, what we see is how to, how to exit liberalism in the EU. Political analyst and editor-in-chief of Cultura Liberlana, Jaroslav Kuitz there. Jaroslav's book, The New Politics of Poland, A Case of Post-Traumatic Sovereignty, is out in November with Manchester University Press. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. A very different and much lighter second half coming up now as we take a breather and look at such feel-good delights as the UK repair shop fixing large Bavanga's toaster. Um, so I would normally start with the plug, check the fuse, make sure that hasn't blown. The Spanish film festival celebrating the women of horror. I feel like female filmmakers in the genre industry are starting to get kind of more recognition. It's still kind of lagging behind a little bit. I kind of do very kind of intense films uh, from a voyeuristic approach at times uh, that they can get a little bit too scary to the conventional commercial realm. I get a lot of like, oh, really? You want to do that? Actually, I've, as an actor, I've started like telling you know producers and director colleagues of mine, I'm like, I really want to play creatures. I want to be like the next Doug Jones. And they're like, oh. And the new DW History podcast with a quirky approach to storytelling. Don't drink the milk. Don't drink the milk. Don't drink the milk. Don't drink the milk, but do sit back, relax and enjoy. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. October 15th was International Repair Day, which highlights the number of fixable items we tend to simply throw away. In the EU alone, 35 million tonnes of goods that might be repairable go in the bin each year, resulting in more than 261 million tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions. But the tide might be slowly turning, thanks in no small part to the thousands of repair cafes that are popping up all over the continent. Repair cafes like the one that our correspondent, Naj Bavanga, visited in Manchester in the UK, together with a rather forlorn-looking toaster. This community hall in the town of Marple is transformed once a month into a hub for repairs of everything from clothes to furniture and electronics. I have brought an item myself that I was thinking of throwing out, but this place might give it new life. Hi, I'm Kirsten Burgess. Um, I volunteer and help with the Marple Repair Café. When people come here, they bring small things that need repaired, like sewing, um, toys, um, electronics, things like that. And we have a range of volunteers who have skills, like electricians, uh, woodworkers. We've got somebody who's got a 3D printer that can print out little bits. So I've got a brand new toaster that worked for a few days and then it stops working. And I've been assigned a volunteer. Let's see how it goes. Initially, I was a GP for about 25 years. But I've always been interested in 
gadgets and technology and um, love taking things apart and even when I can't put them back together. Richard Gain is the man with the 3D printer and skills in electronics. Could he be the one to resurrect my broken toaster? Um, so I would normally start with the plug, check the fuse, make sure that hasn't blown. It looks like this investigation might take some time, so I decide to talk to some of the others who have turned up with defective items here today. What, what have you brought in here to, uh, to, right. to be fixed well, today? There's a magnifying lamp goes in here. Right. And the little plastic housing is um, broken. So... Uh, is this the first time you've been to the repair company? No, I brought uh, a bread maker which they couldn't fix so sadly but um, I just think it's a brilliant idea isn't it to recycle rather than uh, put in landfill I have brought two lamps that um, have not worked for quite a while <laughs> one of them this, this one that, that uh, angles and moves is a, one of a pair that have a bedside lamp so unfortunately it's just not worked for a long long time so they look quite old have it sort of got sentimental value? I guess so, yes. I've had them a, a good while, yeah. I don't want to throw them out. They're too good. During World War II, people in Britain and elsewhere in Europe got used to repairing things, or make, do and mend, as the slogan went in many public information films, like this one. Well, when it comes to clothes, make, do and mend needn't be at all unfashionable. Listen to what you can do. Mrs. Clark made her frock from a pair of her husband's old plus four trousers and half a yard of new material. Today, of course, unlike during wartime, we have endless access to resources. But the spirit of make do and mend is slowly being resurrected in places like my local repair cafe. And it is far from the only one. My name is Martina Posna. I'm founder and director of the Repair Café International Foundation. In 2009, I was a journalist at the time and I wrote about sustainability and waste prevention. I wanted to actively try to change people's behaviour. Repair Café founder Martina Potsma started out wanting to find out why we create so much waste. A big reason? We no longer do repairs, which used to be part of life. It's because many new products are so cheap and so available that it's more attractive to buy a new item in many cases than to have an old item repaired. So I thought to make it attractive, it has to be cheaper than, than buying a new product. And the only option then is to make it volunteer work. Nearly 14 years ago to the day, in October 2009, the very first repair café was held in Amsterdam. So what did Martina Potsma expect? I thought it could work because repairing can be fun. And when you fix something, you feel good, you feel proud. 
and work it did. There are now nearly 3,000 repair cafes worldwide, from Alaska to Honolulu, Mumbai to New Zealand. Each month they fix more than 51,000 products. Here in the UK alone, there are now more than 460 repair cafes like this one. One of the secrets behind this success is that anyone can set up a repair cafe with the help of a starter kit available in five different languages which you can download from the Repair Cafe website. Now, I think it's time for me to go back and check how Richard is getting on with my toaster. Is it still a mystery? No, um, this was soldered onto the main board and, and it's blown. It's a fuse on the main board? Yeah, it was soldered across there. It works. Yeah, the light's on. It's getting hot. Brilliant. I can have toast again. You can. I'll put all the screws back. Bearing in mind that it's hot now. (laughs) Well, that saved one working toaster from ending up in landfill. Now, the EU is taking steps to save more toasters, and much besides, of course. The Union's Circular Economy Plan, which was adopted in 2020, aims to prevent waste and to keep resources in the EU economy for as long as possible. Repair cafes like this one fit neatly into that plan. And on the individual level... It makes you feel good knowing you are doing your little bit for the future of the planet. Lars Bevanger, DW, at the Repair Café in Marple, Manchester. I'll toast to that, Lars. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Anyway, you know what else I would toast to? And that is women in film. Make that horror films and oh boy, have you got me. Lucky for me then that our Spanish correspondent, Ashish Sharma, has been at one of the best known film festivals in the genre of horror, cult and fantasy. The Sitges Festival has been running since 1968 in the Catalan town of Sitges in northeast Spain and is an unmissable event for moviegoers wanting to see the latest horrors about to be released as well as catch up on all the latest trends and technologies in the genre. This year, for the first time ever, the festival also dedicated a two-day conference to looking at the role of women in horror and the obstacles that they face behind the camera. Here's the report. Don't be scared. As the zombies edge forward in ever-menacing growls, the female lead screams for the upteenth time and cowers behind the main hero as he valiantly puts down monster after monster. It's been the traditional role on screen in typical horror films. But behind the scenes, women have been pioneers in this genre. I created it. I made it with my own hands from the bodies I took from graves, from the gallows, anywhere. Let's not forget, probably the most famous spectre of them all, Frankenstein's monster, was created by Mary Shelley way back in 1818. Moments, I think, in the history of women in horror. Award-winning film critic and author Alexandra Heller Nicholas, who kicked off the two-day conference, says that the first thing that needs to be debunked is this theory that women aren't fans of gore and violence. I really discovered horror on the slumber party circuit. So I would go, you know, bunches of teenage girls watching Nightmare on Elm Street on video. And it's like, actually, there's always been women horror fans. It's, it's just that now we see each other and we kind of have events and, and we have panels like this. What what do you feel women bring to the genre? It's a reminder that it's not just homogenous, you know, that there are so many different viewpoints. And I think what's so interesting about this sort of women in horror movement 
is that it also makes space for for filmmakers of colour, for queer filmmakers, for disabled filmmakers. It's like there's lots of different people in these fantasy genre spaces and we've always been here. I think we're sort of realising maybe we're not a minority. In her video movie, Escape the Living Dead, Nikki Bomb played the starring role as an all-action fighter who takes on the zombies. But the actor, writer and director says that the film industry has difficulties accepting violent and macabre ideas that come from women. I feel like female filmmakers in the genre industry are starting to get kind of more recognition. It's still kind of lagging behind a little bit. I kind of do very kind of intense films uh, from a voyeuristic approach at times uh, that they can get a little bit too scary to the conventional commercial realm. I get a lot of like, oh, really? You want to do that? Actually, I've, as an actor, I've started like telling you know producers and director colleagues of mine, I'm like, I really want to play creatures. I want to be like the next Doug Jones. And they're like, oh, but you know, don't you want to be like you know a feminine, you know, a woman, you know, and stuff? And I'm like, no, I really want to just go down dark and dirty. And it's like, I really feel like we do need a kind of give more approach to that and more opportunity to women to just be, you know, get down in the trenches. My name is Monica Garcia Masague. I am the general manager of the Foundation of Sitges International Fantastic Film Festival of Catalonia. We did a research about our official selection. In 56 years, only the 6% of the official selection was directed by women. So we put the question that maybe we have a problem of visibility. And this year, we decided to give uh, one more step and to try to focus in the storytelling created by women, and especially in Europe, because we felt that there is a, a huge lack of names, especially in some territories like Spain, Italy, Poland. There is almost uh, nothing about women and the opportunities to create fantastic movies. We've just had a very interesting session talking to a French documentary maker who's really explained a lot of the problems that uh, she's had in terms of budgeting. My name is Karma Puche. The association it's called Donas Visual, which means in Catalan visual women. It's an absolutely true that the bias between uh, men and women in budget, it's a big one. In these movies where there is a woman director or producer, there is also a lot of women in the crew and in the head of the different departments, which it means these movies with less budget are the ones that have more, more women also with less budget, with less, less, being paid less than, than men. So it's something that's going to repeat and repeat if we don't stop that in some way. Horror has always been for the freaks and for the outsiders and for the weirdos, you know. So I think that feeling of being the outsider in a, in a genre about outsiders it's almost, um, it almost makes us cool, you know what I mean? <laughs> In her book, Frankenstein, Mary Shelley wrote, Beware, for I am fearless, and therefore more powerful. Shelley would no doubt be disappointed that in 2023 there was such a need for the two-day conference. 
But the opportunity for women to highlight the continuing problems they face as actresses, writers, directors and producers was also balanced by examples of incredible success that they've had and continue to have, not only in this genre, but in cinema overall. Ashish Sharma, DW Sitches. <laughs> Boo! No, don't panic. Quiz questions up next. Last week, we asked you what Germany's currency was called before the euro. So congratulations to everyone who said Deutsche Mark. This week, in honour of the world's largest book fair, which opened on Wednesday, we're asking where that event is taking place. Is it A. Glasgow B. Warsaw C. Barcelona or D. Frankfurt Head over to Spotify if you want to take part. Just a quick reminder that our email address for feedback is still insideeurope at dw.com. We have an exciting guest appearance coming up next, so do stay tuned. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. I'm incredibly excited to be joined in the studio by my colleague Rachel Stewart, host of the brand new DW podcast, Don't Drink the Milk. More about that slightly strange title later. But first of all, Rachel, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> now, I have to um, give a, a, sort of a bit of a personal, I know this isn't about me, but like, just bear me with me, right? The first time that I met you, Rachel, we were in a DW training session about oh, yeah. podcasts, do you remember? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I got really excited because you kind of, you didn't, you didn't pitch your idea, but it became quite clear that there was an idea that was already pretty far along in terms of development and, you know, your ideas at least. And um, the idea was about European culture. So I immediately <laughs> got in contact with you over Teams and said, let's meet up, let's meet up. So I feel like I have kind of been part of the podcast journey in a way. Definitely. I saw your eyes light up on our team's call. <laughs> in an almost predatory way. How can we get this woman on our show? <laughs> well, it worked out. Here I am. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, right, OK, so the podcast, Don't Drink the Milk. It's quite a unusual, an unusual title and you're quite conscious of this because there is a mini pilot episode that basically deals with all the questions that I'm about to ask. Don't Drink the Milk. Weird name for a podcast, right? But it will all make sense, I promise. And no, it's not a podcast about milk. If you like historical intrigue, a bit of culture and a sprinkling of controversy, this one's for you. The arguments of homeopathy are based on, like, sand. And the sand was pouring through my fingers. I'm Rachel Stewart, and for this new podcast from DW, I'm travelling around Europe, tracing the backstories of objects, ideas and movements that you know well. But maybe you never really stopped to think how these things got to you. 
Condoms are known as French letters in the 19th century. Syphilis is the French disease, but in France it's the Italian disease. Join us to follow the strange journeys of these everyday things and see how they change shape as they're exported through time and around the world, by force, by chance, or by choice. No need to pack your bags. Just subscribe to Don't Drink the Milk wherever you listen to podcasts. Right, so we can hear, Rachel, there that um, the storytelling is going to be a key part of this podcast and we're going to be taken on lots of twists and turns. But the overall arc is always going to take a phenomenon or an idea that we're all very familiar with and it's going to make the connections between its European origins and its afterlife um, across the globe. Exactly. It's kind of fun because quite often you learn about history or hear about history from one country's perspective. And this is a really fun idea because we start off somewhere in Europe, some corner of Europe, but we follow the journey that this thing makes and it really does change as it goes. So it goes through different cultures, different eras, uh, and you kind of look at why, how did that impact on this thing, whatever it is that we're following? What did the zeitgeist have to do with it? So why did that also change it perhaps? And by the time it ends up with whoever's listening to the podcast, how does it look today? Mm. So go on, give me a sense of the kind of topics that you're going to be covering. There's all sorts of ones. We've got a list of about maybe 60 ideas overall, so I think we're sorted for the next seven seasons. <laughs> but in season one, some of the topics we're going to be looking at, for example, homeopathy, which is a topic which has interested me ever since I moved to Germany. I just find it fascinating. Um, Hang on, wait, wait, dial that back. It's a topic that's interested me ever since I moved to Germany. Yes, because I am... I find it very fascinating how it's woven into society here. Is there a darker side to this as well? Because I'm just quite conscious that there have been um, a lot of articles about the homeopathy scene and the crossover with um, anti-vax protests and stuff like that. For sure. And I mean, the darkness starts earlier on as well. I mean, there's definitely also a Nazi connection here. So it was pr promoted during the Nazi era in Germany. Um, a lot of people forget that. Um, yeah, and in the modern day, it's absolutely been linked to anti-vaxxers, so that kind of um, fringe population, you could say. Uh, but the point of the podcast is not necessarily to debunk homeopathy. It's a super curious, interesting topic. We're going to find out why on earth it has um, managed to survive all these years <laughs> since uh, it was invented in somewhere in eastern Germany, in Meissen. Um, and also look at how why it succeeded in different countries, like very different countries. So some of the, the most popular markets for, some of the most popular countries for the homeopathy market are the USA, India and Germany. Three very different countries with very different health systems and very different cultures. So how does that work that a system like this slots into all of them so well? Ah, fantastic. I've um, I've been given your kind of um, programming schedule, so I know that we've got a little while to wait before we can actually hear this episode. But m episodes that are coming out um, earlier include one on passports and nationality. Yes, that's going to be episode one, actually. Ooh. So uh, <laughs> that's going to be an exploration of the passport itself. And then we, we move into ideas of identity and citizenship. Um, we cover statelessness, for example. Uh, we look at the controversial topic of buying and selling passports. Um, and we've got a few little surprises along the way, like us managing to get hold of and get our names on a new passport in the episode. So we've just received our new passports from... Vivchani! We are Vivchani citizens! The Republic of Vivchani. Rachel, how do you feel? I mean, I feel like... It was a little bit too easy. <laughs> it was. It was really easy. Uh, we How much did it cost? 
three euros. <laughs> what a bargain. <laughs> what do you think of your new second state of citizenship? I feel like I want to move here. It's really nice here. It's pretty beautiful. It's very peaceful. The people seem nice. Lovely. And they let us in so easily that, yeah, I feel very accepted. Should we fill it in? Let's do it. Got to make it official. Okay. So we have place of birth. Yep. Hereford. Date of issue. That was 290923. We're supposed to have a passport picture. Should we just draw a self-portrait? Yeah. Wow. Spitting image. Oh, I have a really big chin. I feel like we should drink to our new citizenship. Yes. With some local rakia. Givale. Givale. We should name check some people here because one of another sort of interesting departure about the sort of format for this podcast is that you've actually, along the way, along your journey, teamed up with different editors and presenters from DW to tell different parts of the story. Yes, true. So because this is such a broad topic, it it's kind of useful to have people who have a, a niche knowledge. I'm kind of the um, the person who doesn't know that much in-depth stuff about some of these history topics, I'd say, but I'm super curious about the thing, the, the stories that we've come across. But we've got, for example, Sam Baker, who hosted Living Planet for DW, uh, Charlie Shield, another host from Living Planet. So they kind of bring along some environmental, some scientific knowledge, which is great. Um, we've got Chris Cowler, who is one of our Italian producers. He brings along um, more of the, let's say, technology business beat. So did you get to sort of travel to different places with different members of the team? Yes, uh, we really are travelling. So we really are taking people with us to these different places, meeting people on the ground, following the stories as we go, often getting some cool tips while we're there and then and then following them, investigating a little bit. It's more like a travel podcast where we actually learn all sorts of interesting stuff about history, society, culture. It's it's a journey, man. It's a journey. It's an actual journey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fantastic. So what do you think um, have been or has been the most surprising twist on that journey? Oh, you're asking me for all the spoilers. I'm really, aren't I? I mean, personally, I'm just constantly surprised by the connections that are made between different countries that you're not expecting. Also, just the way that it's an everyday thing that you really think you know about, and then you find out something that really surprises you. For example, let's take IPA beer, Indian Pale Ale. I love Indian Pale Ale. Right? But the clue's in the title. Hmm. Why is it Indian Pale Ale? Aha, uh-huh. it's got a link back to the colonial era. That's good. Right, this is a colonial story, <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. But, you know, it's in every cool craft bar, um, craft beer pub that you can go to, you're going to get your IPA. Yeah, finding out that it's got very much colonial roots puts a different spin on your favourite beer. Mm. So, yeah, we touch upon different corners of the globe as well. Well, appropriately, uh, given the the format of your podcast, I feel that we have been on quite a meandering journey here and I want to circle back now, if that's okay, to milk. Can we talk about milk? Yes, definitely. So it's not to do with the the episode title. I want to know um, about lactose intolerance because (laughs) that is also something that uh, you unearth in, in connection with the name, right? It isn't a separate... Yeah, it was kind of like... Oh, we're not a podcast about milk, but we're called Don't Drink the Milk. Therefore, should we do an episode about milk? (laughs) Looked into it and found that lactose tolerance actually did begin in Central Europe. They're not exactly sure about the exact location. Because it's a mutation, right? Exactly. So there's there's a mutation that happened in Europe. There are also separate mutations that happened in Africa. So we follow the European mutation and look at 
um, you know, obviously we start off with the science bit and it gets a bit science nitty gritty. So Sam was very happy. But we cover all sorts of stuff on this journey as we go. We've got politics and money and advertising and lobbies. It's gets a bit dark. It gets a bit, um, it's, it's a complex story, but super, super interesting. Well, you told me no spoilers, but I do have a clip actually from this episode. <laughs> can, I, can I play it? Okay, that's allowed. <laughs> okay, here's the dairy section. Okay, definitely need some yogurt because you've been going on about yogurt the whole time. <laughs> yeah, of course. We need yogurt, definitely. <laughs> we can take this one. I know this from my childhood, so I like this. And we definitely need some cheese. Yeah, sure. That's why we're in Bulgaria. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but this white cheese is enormous. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to eat that in a month. No, we eat this in one day. One family, <laughs> one day. Huge. Of okay. course. We put it everywhere. So, uh, Rachel, that was um, literally the most cheesiest clip we could have <laughs> chosen. <laughs> uh, fantastic. Right, okay. Well, um, in terms of the fate of the actual podcast, the journey really begins this week because this is the launch, right? Yes, exactly. Where do people go to listen? All the usual places, I guess. All the usual places, wherever you like listening to podcasts, you should be able to find us. We are the only podcast called Don't Drink the Milk. Can you believe that? <laughs> <laughs> but also, and also as of this week, because it, it is kind of a, a double launch, isn't it? You're the poster child for this launch. There is a new place that you can find not just Don't Drink the Milk, but other DW podcasts, including Inside Europe as well. Exactly. There is now a YouTube channel called DW Podcasts. And there really is something for everyone there. There's all sorts of different topics. There's news, there's environment, science... And this history, that's our one. Uh, so you can even get some video content there if that's, that's, that's your bag. <laughs> well, Rachel, all the best with the launch and thank you so much for coming into the studio. Thank you. Before we leave you, a quick and very heartfelt thank you to everyone who voted for our Women of Europe special in the Signal Podcast Awards. We won both Listener's Choice and Jury Gold in our category, so we are extremely pleased, especially since we get to share the recognition with all the incredible women showcased in that episode. That's it for today. The programme was produced by me, Kate Laycock, with help from Nick Martin and sound engineers, wait for it, Jana Stegemann, Leon Novak, Ziad Abu Sleiman, Lars Schlimmer and Thomas Rulich. Special thanks go to our colleagues Crispin Wakadeo and Rachel Stewart. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn. <laughs> <laughs>